Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Marlin's Corner. I am Marlin, and I'm excited to have you join me again for this week's review. Um, Marlin's Corner, the podcast that gives you reviews in under 30 minutes, so you have something to watch, something to talk about. Uh, and we're going to go back to our roots, folks. We're going back to Netflix. We're going to be talking about Senior Year, The Pentaveret. And we'll end on discussion of our father. So just so those are the three we're going in with. And hopefully you've been on our social media. So you're all caught up because we will be touching on some spoilers. Uh, but with that being said, let's start with first senior year. Now, senior year is directed by Alex Hardcastle, uh, who has some experience with a few um, rom-coms, some might say. And this is definitely rom-com field you know it's uh it's it's feel good it's happy go lucky uh he's been a director of you're the worst uh, a young doctor's notebook and most notably parks and rec so you kind of this is important to know going forward with um our lead character being rebel wilson um the backstory is a cheerleader falls off a pyramid and into a coma she awakens 20 years later, present day, 2022, in the body of a 37-year-old woman. But having only aged physically and knowing nothing else, she returns to claim her seat at the popular table and win the prom queen crown that has eluded her. Um, starring in this movie, senior year, is, of course, Rebel Wilson, Sam Richardson, Mary Holland, Zoe Chow, and Chris Parnell, just to name a few. And, of course, there are some great uh, young actors in here as well. And this is another high school reunion redo-esque film. Um, this time, uh, the kind of uh, catalyst of all the drama happens to be um, an attempted murder, which doesn't get the focus it deserves, but more on that later. This is uh, a Rebel Wilson film. If you're a fan of Rebel Wilson, you kind of know what to expect going into it. If you're not a fan, uh, you kind of already can guess it's going to have um, crude language, sexual innuendo. Uh, it's kind of all over the place. If it's not your vibe, like if you watch the Pitch Perfect films and they weren't your vibe, you should know going into this, it's a very similar, very similar vibe. But what I did enjoy about this film is the music. Uh, they really wanted to capture what it's like to be uh, uh, a millennial going back into high school and a, a lot of her music choices definitely lean more towards like the Britney Spears, um, the Bewitches. Like it, it was definitely giving you like, oh, this is like music that I would jam to, but maybe not most notably, you know, kids would have, you know, on their playlists, some might say, but they really wanted to kind of give you all those feels, which is really fun to kind of be a part of. Um, what was surprising um, and interesting about this film, despite, of course, it being off the wall, bonkers bananas, uh, is it introduces uh, a lot of questionable things that uh, I know I did growing up um, in the 90s and early aughts, um, specifically around the way we used language. One of the most interesting things that happens is, you know, she her last recollection is 2002 uh, and she's in a car driving back from the hospital. And, you know, instead of saying, oh, this is dumb, she says the R word, which we use a lot. You know, there was even a Black Eyed Peas song that used it a bunch of times, but having her have, have the discussion of, no, we don't say that anymore. It's a slur. And, you know, as a as a community, we've all decided that word's going to kind of go away. And then she follows it up with like, oh, that's gay. And it's like, oh, we also don't say it like that either. And you kind of like, for me, I was like, oh, damn, like, yeah, like those were frequently in 
like the rotation of things that as a young person growing up at the time that I definitely just kind of dropped out there without even thinking how others might be affected by it because it just really wasn't something that, you know, around me, people were having the conversation of. It was just more or less like, you know, this is like, this is in the world, like these are the words we're using. This is how we speak. Uh, and so kind of having a chance to really look inward of like, oh, wow, like that definitely could uh, affect others, especially like how they tied it to the character. Uh, specifically, there's a character who is gay uh, and it's one of her best friends. And she's like, yeah, I've been gay since high school. Uh, but language like that, that I heard around me is what kept me from fully, you know, being myself. And it even kind of gave us a look into uh, this character. You know, she's friends with the queen bee of the school and she's like very, you know, reclusive. She's very shy. Uh, and you can kind of see she's uncomfortable in high school. Yet the main character, uh, Rebel Wilson's character, uh, who um, is her name is Stephanie is really into high school. She's one of those folks who had a really great experience at high school. Uh, and this is like, yo, high school is the best. And you have a friend who's like, high school is the worst. And so you have this really interesting discussion around like, hey, here's why it was really hard for me. And I know you didn't mean anything by it, but the words you chose to use contributed to me feeling less than in these spaces. And that's the thing. And that I think is a really powerful conversation. And it's only doubled down with how they try to, with how they provide other examples of uh, this whole like, high school fantasy. And to help out with that, they get none other than Alicia Silverstone to be in this movie. And I think for me, you know, I watched Clueless growing up. I watched her in a, a bunch of other movies uh, to kind of have her be in this film. I was like, oh, wow. Like, yeah, she's when I imagine like a high school film, I imagine her and then get her in this film uh, to more or less discuss how this archetype of like, yes, as a young woman, high school is great because I get to be pretty and I get to date the football player and I get to like be the prom queen. And we kind of kind of have that story laid out for her in the beginning of the film. Stephanie, as a young lady, sees uh, this adult version of Alicia Silverstone, who is living uh, this picturesque life. You know, she was the head cheerleader, the prom queen. She's super hot. She's dating the hot quarterback prom king and things seem to be great for her. And when Stephanie wakes up out of a coma, you know, 14 years later, and she so happens to, you know, run into this version of Alicia Silverstone, she finds out that like, things weren't as perfect as they were. You know, she says that I was so focused on being prom queen, on being the head cheerleader, that that became my entire obsession, my entire world. And when my marriage fell apart and my husband, you know, ran off with like the maid or whatever, um, I had to rebuild myself. And in that moment, they could have easily just had that moment be a moment of like, oh, we feel so sorry for you. But instead they kind of go for like, yeah, that all that happened. And then I decided that, you know what, I'm going to educate myself. Uh, and if that means I have to work as an Uber driver, which she happens to be in a scene, she picks up Stephanie in an Uber and like, yeah, like I'm an Uber driver, but like, I also am going to school. I have other passions and that was a setback. Like, but my life is far ahead of me and I'm going to continue to live that way. I think that was a really awesome moment to show that. Yes, she had a negative fallback, but she's still is growing and still can be fulfilled despite losing these things. And I think it was beautiful to kind of have that in there to show that it doesn't matter how old you are, you can still find yourself. And that honestly is worthy of praise in that moment. So that was really great. Where I feel like this film absolutely dropped off for me, and, and I mean, among other things like, you know, dialogue and storylines. In the beginning of this film, 
I told you earlier, this girl is almost murdered and there's like no consequences. To paint you this picture, we open the film with the young Stephanie becoming like the head cheerleader and she has a rival named Tiffany and like they're going back and forth about like how like who's going to be like the actual like queen of the school and be like the prom queen. And it's like more or less played up as like very typical, you know, high school movie drama uh, and where it takes a step into like the very far left of things is when in the middle of one of the performances and Stephanie's like thrown like, you know, 10 feet in the air. Uh, Tiffany has these two other mean girls like shove these two dudes away that are supposed to catch her. So Stephanie's in the air and mind you, they're not on a mat. You know, this is not a uh, cheer. Like there's no mat. They're in the middle of the gym on a hardwood floor. This girl is tossed 10 feet in the air. There's no one there to catch her. And she hits the ground hard, hard enough, of course, to put her into a coma. And this is done in front of the entire student body. We find a letter that, that there's someone even recording it. And so she's almost murdered in front of everyone. And as the story progresses, at no point in time do we see or hear of there being any consequences. Like no one goes to jail. No one gets expelled. Uh, apparently she almost gets killed and they kind of just resume high school and just kind of keep going. And she has parents who care for her. And it's just really surprising to see that there was like that no one wanted to further go there. Her friends were there and happened to, to visit her every day in the hospital. And it's like, did no one know that like was no one looking because clearly everyone was looking. How did we not arrest this young lady who tried to kill Stephanie? And what's worse is that the when she's an adult. Stephanie seems to kind of maybe believe or have suspicions that there was foul play, but there's never anything done about it. At no point does she straight up say, hey, you almost killed me and that's messed up. It's just like, great, it happened. High school kids will be high school kids. We're just going to move on with the story. And I think that bothered me the entire film because having been someone who's worked at a high school before, if there is a moment where another student harms a student to the point of drawing blood or rendering them unconscious, you kind of have to legally take some steps to uh, hold that child accountable for the harm they've caused to the other child. That's at a school level. And like, there's also the other level of like, does the parent want to sue? So it just seems like there was a huge egregious moment of like, who is in charge of the school and who just let this attempted murder to slide and let the girl who potentially orchestrated said attempted murder be allowed to be prom queen and have no consequences. It bothered me all of the film. And I, I think it kept me from like being super ingrained in it. It had a great outro, great song to be played, but I kept thinking like, hey, this person tried to kill you and there isn't enough attention being paid to this and it should be. Uh, all in all, it's a 7 out of 10. I'm giving it a 7 because I think that I had to keep watching it because I wanted to see some more. of like, hey, like how... How wild can this be? And also, I just really love Sam Richardson. He's been in a lot of things. And what's funny is Sam Richardson and Zoe Chow were also on the Netflix um, series that also was a very high school reunion film as well. So he, so they've been together doing high school films about two times in a row now. And I just kind of enjoy Sam Richardson's comedy, his physical comedy, his comments. He's just a very funny person. So uh, I'll give it a seven out of 10 because I'm biased for that. But I 
fully uh, encourage you if you feel up for it, give it a gander, give it a view. It is uh, at least entertaining enough to have in the background. All righty. And next up, also on Netflix, we have The Pentaveret, uh, directed by Tim Kirby. Uh, and this film, huh, this film is, uh, <laughs> it is a throwback, y'all. It is most definitely uh, a throwback. It's a capsule film. Uh, it, I enjoy Mike Myers. I truly do. I enjoy Mike Myers. And this film also had like Keegan-Michael Key, it had Ken Jeong, it had cameos from Rob Lowe, Melissa Menudo. This felt like it was out of time. Like it felt like this film may have been made like in the early aughts, like post uh, Austin Powers and it just got released now because the entire time I'm watching it, I kept thinking I kept thinking Mike Myers was like a moment away from dropping uh, a million to billion dollars or, or just something ridiculous because I, I kept seeing him as Dr. Evil or as Austin Powers throughout the entire thing. And it had some interesting moments. I can see that Mike Myers was definitely trying to like really put on some acting chops with certain characters. And the whole point of this film, uh, The Pentaveret, is about the secret society uh, that's trying to do good in the world uh, that like has this otherworldly knowledge of like basically the trueness of the world. They are they are fully aware of how things operate. They're behind the scenes. They're pulling strings. And, you know, it's five men who have been working and they've influenced world events um, since the Black Plague, apparently. And, you know, they're. There's one Canadian journalist who they're really interested in, and he's trying to uncover the truth and maybe even save the world. Um, it just feels so strange. It's a very strange film because he plays every single character damn near. Uh, it gave me like the clumps vibes where like, it's like, damn, Eddie Murphy, you're in every single character in this film. That's Mike Myers. He's every character in the film. There are some jokes. There are a ton of misses. I won't say it's as bad as Love Guru, which I will say is the worst thing I've ever seen. But the Pentaveret definitely is a close second. I mean, it's like a five out of ten. I would say it's five out of ten. It's not necessary to watch it. If you're a Mike Myers fan, this is going to be entertaining because it's like, oh, Mike's back. He's doing interesting things. And Jeremy Irons has a great intro for every episode. He always like changes it up and he curses at you at certain points. And that was really fun to kind of have Jeremy Irons just be like, I don't give a hell like about this intro. I'm going to curse and whatnot. That was really fun to kind of have. But yeah, it was it was interesting. I wouldn't recommend it. It makes fun of conspiracy theorists, which is entertaining. At a certain point, there's like a really cool line of dialogue that says that, you know, everyone wants to feel different. Everyone wants to feel like they're better than someone else and wants to make another person an other so that their life feels better in comparison, which was a cool nugget to kind of drop in there. But they dropped it in there right as like someone is like kicked through a moon door through bad <laughs> through like a through like bad uh, blue screening. You kind of watch them pretend to fall. But like it's just it's just it's just. It's just that the camera's pulling out and they're kind of just on the floor like, no. It, yeah. Pentaverit. Um, it's a pass. I would say it's a pass. You don't need to watch it. If you want to watch it, I would watch it with friends so you can make fun of it because it's truly, 
truly awful, just awful. And last up, we have Our Father, um, which is by Bloomhouse TV. Uh, and we know that Bloomhouse does great with horror. Uh, and this is real life horror. So um, just a warning for folks who, you know, going into this, this one definitely hits close to home because it is a true documentary story. Uh, it's about uh, Dr. Donald Klein, a fertility doctor who was giving a lot of praise for the work he did around helping women get pregnant, around helping families have children. And it was later discovered through um, 23andMe, uh, one of the children decided to kind of see if they could you know, find their father. They were an adult now. They wanted to, they, you know, they had some questions. They go to Dr. Klein and he tells them all the records have been burned or destroyed. Um, you'll never know who your father is. It's okay. You can just move forward with life. Um, not satisfied with that, you know, 23andMe helps her out, gives her a few folks uh, to kind of talk to and then reaching out to folks. She finds the um, cousin, of uh dr klein and uh through that she's able to determine that dr klein the, my, my mom's fertility doctor is my father and through her constant consistent discovery she discovers a second sibling and then a third sibling and then a fourth sibling and then a fifth sibling and at this point in time they're realizing that all our families went to see Dr. Klein. And what's worse is that half of them were told that they were getting a sample uh, of sperm from a doctor in residency across the way of the fertility clinic. The other half, their uh, fathers brought in their own sperm for it to be um, placed in the woman for fertilization. And they realized that those were lies. And then instead, Donald Klein was going into his office in the back room, masturbating, collecting his his uh, specimens, and then inserting them into the women in the next room. And that's some fucked up shit. Like, again, this man would tell the families, hey, put on this little gown, put your legs in a stirrup. I'll be right back with your sample. He goes next door and he's just jacking it. And then he comes back and he tells you what you believe or what the families believe is like, great, here is the sample of someone else and I'm going to insert it in you. That was their full belief. And he wasn't doing that. He was lying to them. And then when these when these children came forward with their families and they're like, hey, you're our father. He told them, no, I'm not. Um, you're just confused. Um, it's not me. And then eventually after pressing him and after there being several more siblings up to seven at this point in time he meets them all in person and instead of giving them answers he begins just to interview them like hey like what's your job and what's your job what's your salary and it's just like taking notes on them and it's jotting down like how his progeny is doing and of course they're upset like hey like why would you do this and his and his answers of course are like oh you know the sample got misplaced or oh your family really wanted to went on a baby and i wanted to help out and it's like cool we love that you want to help us out but like why would you lie to people and not say anything some of these children their fathers went 30 plus years with them not knowing that they they weren't their father. A lot of them had dads who were really upset. Like, I can't believe that I thought that, again, that we went to this doctor who told us we could have kids through him. And at the end of the day, this child that I raised that is now an adult with their own kids 
is not my actual child. Happens to be the doctor's child. And what ended up happening was like they kept like getting farther and farther out. And at some point you start to kind of realize that it's more than one. And it's also starting to all happen around a certain community. And as they're interviewing other doctors are saying, hey, the one thing we typically do is we'll only use typically a donor at the most three times and then stop because you don't want there to be too many of one person's children in one area because that's how you get accidental inbreeding. And sure enough, there are at this point in time in the story, 40 other children in this zip code area around this man. And now they're like, now they're telling their kids before you start dating, you need to see if they know their DNA or have them do a test because we got to be careful. It's 40 at this time. We get another interview where his like good friend and his wife are talking about like, yeah, like we knew him like way back in the day. And I'm thinking like, what's the whole point of them being in the story? Are they here to like make him seem like less than a monster? And then the kicker hits when they say, yeah, he helped us out too. We wanted to get pregnant and my wife was having issues. And then we found out that our daughter is is also his daughter. So not only did he do this to total strangers, he did this to even his own friends under the guise of I'm helping. And at that point, it's 44 going on 46 kids he has at this point in time that is happening around him. And I'm sure you're asking the same question. Did they sue this man? And guess what? Apparently they couldn't. For the longest time, they had written the like they had written the, to the attorney general. They had written to uh, newspapers just saying, hey, like this happened to us. Can we sue this person? Like we need to bring light to this. And no one wanted to really do anything about it. The attorney general was like, hey, like one, there's no law specifically against this. And two, if we take this to court, he's just going to say, oh, these people were desperate for a kid and I gave them one. What's the big deal? It, it wasn't like the, it, it wasn't like they can get pregnant on their own. Without me, they wouldn't have had this child. The attorney general didn't even want to go forward with this specific case. The only thing that got this man into court at all was initially when they asked him, the attorney general, when they were doing an investigation, they asked him, are you these, you know, these kids fathers? And he said, no, I'm not. So they only got him in court because he lied about being the father. And then when they got him in court, the judge refused to hear any other testimony from uh, the, the children regarding anything but him lying to the attorney general. So they couldn't talk about how their mothers were impregnated against uh, were pretty much given semen from someone else they were lied to that they didn't consent to having a semen inside of them. So they couldn't even talk about that. They can only talk about, Oh, he lied about the investigation and that's bad. And that was it. And he didn't even get court time because apparently uh, a neighboring DA that knew Dr. Klein wrote to the judge and said, this man is a good man. He should get time served. And when they asked another DA, hey, is this normal and is this legal? He chose to say, I'm not going to comment on that. Which basically means that if you know a DA friend and they write you a letter, you're you're off scot-free, which is just another way in which the legal system helps no one and only helps those who have money and power because literally that's all it took was a letter from another DA to say, hey, this guy is cool. Don't send him to jail. And the case was over. 
Like he got time served and thankfully he got a felony for lying, but there was no other crime associated with him inseminating these other women. And through the families and through these kids fighting, they were able to introduce state legislation, but there is currently no federal law regarding the legality of this. And it's discovered that there are 44 other doctors in our country who have also done the exact same thing of basically taking their own semen and putting it into women to help them give children without telling the women that it's their semen entirely. Dr. Klein also apparently has medical conditions that he passed down to all these kids who now have autoimmune diseases that they're like, hey, no one in my family has this except for me. And I need more information because why do I have this? Like I've been to the, like I've been to the hospital X, Y, Z time and no one knows why. And I'm going to pass it on to my kids. So this whole other health thing happening. And I think what's worse and sickening is that by the end of the story, we find out that there are 94 confirmed children from this man. 94. At this time, they've only found 94 Meaning this man has gone above and beyond the three time limit that they were trying to say that they're, they're going to stick to. There are 94 kids so far and they don't know how many more of them are else out there. And it's also in one area of each other. They're all within like a good proximity of each other. And so that was this whole issue of potentially having in like, in, in like incest in this entire area because this one man decided to make this choice. And as they talked and investigate him further, they see that he seems to have this very warped view of go forth and multiply. Like he's some kind of old timey testament man. He's like, great, I have like a hundred kids because God told us to go forth and multiply. And it's like, you cannot introduce your religion into this specific field because you end up encroaching on the rights of others. And it's so fitting that we're talking about this as Roe v. Wade potentially make it struck down on the basis of religion. And so we see we see another example of how religion is basically going to have a huge effect on these women uh, and they get no say in the matter. These women don't get to say, no, Dr. Klein, I don't want to have you as a donor. They don't get to say that. He makes that choice for them and he does... The worst thing, like it isn't even like he just has it ready. He goes there and gets himself aroused in a room that's next to this woman and then returns post finishing. So he's still coming down from a state of arousal. And the whole thing is disgusting. The whole thing is is morbid. And this is the world we live in, in which women are not protected at all by the legal system. We don't have a federal law regarding this at all, despite this happening with 44 other doctors. It's sickening. It's sickening and it's terrifying that when bad things happen, the legal system doesn't choose to update itself to protect people. That when this happened, instead of the DA being like, actually, I can't win this case, let's you know talk about you know, maybe finding somebody to help you out like legally. Instead of that being a thing, it's like, great, I can't help you. I'm not going to, you know, take this case. Stop calling me. Just out of luck. That's the worst thing ever to hear that. I mean, again, it's also new. It's also not new. It's not new. This is the world which we live in where when there is a wrong done, unless you got money behind you, you just grin and bear it. And that's just your, and that's just your life. And that's, and that sucks. It truly, truly sucks. And it's a disappointing world in which we live in. 
Um, and I'm sorry to end on such a sour and dour moment, but yeah, our father definitely is, um, it's hard to watch, especially, uh, if you are someone who just watches or watches too much news or, uh, sees where the world is going, it's going to infuriate you, uh, to a whole other level. Um, but I think it's an important watch because I didn't know this was going on. I didn't know this, was, this, was, this wasn't even, I didn't know there, there wasn't even a law against this. I thought that, great, he broke a law. This is going to be a quick docu-series. But to hear, cool, there is no law and we're not going to give this man a consequence is just baffling to me. But hey, you know, just a, a white man in power who's the head of his church who, uh, Got a pass. Um, one of many. One of many. Uh, and with that being said, everyone, that is going to end our review this week. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for being a part of this. Uh, you can follow us, follow me on social media, on Facebook at Mullins Corner and on Instagram at Mullins Corner. If you have any other movie or TV show you want me to introduce into the cycle, go ahead and DM me. I appreciate you being a part of this review, being in my corner, Mullins Corner. And we'll see you next time. And have a good one, y'all. Peace. This episode of Marlin's Corner was produced in Richmond, California.